0: On this episode of The London Life we talk with Dr. Matt Pinson about Reformed Arminianism. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is Arminianism and what is Reformed Arminianism. We're General Baptist Reformed Arminian. Is the General Baptist decline narrative true and accurate and fair? Can you believe in penal substitutionary atonement and be an Arminian? Do Reformed Arminians deny total depravity? Should we call them semi-Pelagian? Do Christians have eternal security on a reformed Arminian understanding? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and this is a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. If you're a brand new listener, what we try to describe that is, is creating or cultivating, encouraging, different words like that, an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we think the Christian life, especially the intellectual life, requires particular virtues with it. You pick up things like James three, and it tells us that the wisdom that comes from above is peaceable, it's open to reason, it's gentle, it's not brash, it's not aggressive, it's not um, uh, full of selfish ambition, and so we think that Christians who think well should be characterized by a particular set of virtues, that things like charity and curiosity. But we also think that it's useful and helpful uh, for guarding sound doctrine uh, to also be confessional in what we think. So we think that there is great use and having statements of faith that help to explain and guide and direct what we think about God in the world. And today, I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Matt Pinson. Uh, Dr. Pinson is somebody I've benefited from immensely, as well as those uh, who are at his institution as well. My friend Jesse Owens, I'm, I'm regularly learning from Jesse. So I, I love what he's doing, and I, and I love uh, all that he's done. And we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about Reformed Arminianism. Now, some of you all who listen probably don't wince at that. Some of you are probably like, a reformed Arminianism, isn't that an oxymoron? So I I am very excited to talk about this. Uh, Dr. Pinson has also written on uh, things related to this. He's got a volume with, I think it's Kriegel on 40 questions about Arminianism. I will link to that in the show notes so you can get a copy of that and learn about it. Anyway, before we get started, Matt, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you at? Uh, What do you do regularly? And then what was it that made you start writing on these sort of topics?
1: Well, I'm in my 22nd year as president of Welch College and Welch Divinity School in Gallatin, Tennessee, and I've been married for almost 30 years to Melinda, and we have two adult children, Anna and Matthew, and we we live here in Gallatin. Uh, my children are students at uh, Welch College. Uh, my, my son's a a BA to MDiv student. And my daughter is getting, she graduated recently and she's getting her MA in humanities. So that's a little bit about me. Fantastic. So
0: when I think I first started reading and learning about Arminianism and Calvinism early, I don't know, it was probably like in college, I read a book by an author that I will leave uh, unnamed. But it basically gave painted a picture of Arminianism that was, Arminianism, they believe that everything is basically chance because free will requires you to have no influences whatsoever. And so it's just, it's radically incoherent and it's bad and it's, it's basically Pelagianism and everything. So tell me, what does Arminianism actually mean?
1: Well, Arminianism uh, is basically uh, a system of, Protestant theology, a system of Reformed theology that teaches uh, the gratia universalis and the gratia resistibilis. And what that means is that uh, God reaches out to all humanity with, with sufficient grace to be converted, and yet that grace can be resisted. And, you know, incidentally, that's a mainstream view of the vast majority of church Catholic. And so that, that's not a new thing. It's just that in the Reformed uh, system, in the Reformed uh, milieu of the day in the late 16th century, there began to be a great many Reformed scholastics in the schools and the universities that began to teach a much more deterministic or much more particular grace, uh, irresistible grace uh, approach. And so Arminius and others developed a, a reaction against that. And so that's why it's come to be known as Arminianism. But in a sense, that's really the emphasis is on the, the, the gospel call to everyone, that Jesus is drawing everyone and calling everyone and pleading with everyone to come and that uh, he will give everyone sufficient grace uh, to come. And so it's it's really a very positive thing. It's not about, it's about the gospel. It's, it's not about, uh, you know, human freedom and the lack of providence and that God doesn't know the future and you know, all those things that have kind of come to, to to be a caricature of Arminianism. It's really about what what how does Jesus hold forth the gospel to us? And uh and can we resist the grace of God in Christ that's uh that's drawing us to himself. Got it. That's helpful.
0: So you you've used the term reformed Arminianism. Arminianism. Yeah. What does that mean? Is that different than just vanilla Arminianism or are these supposed to be synonymous in some way?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, Reformed Arminianism is a lot different from, you know, vanilla Arminianism. That's a good way to put it. Um, you know, and, and I can talk about that from a historical vantage point and from a theological vantage point, which one you want me to start with.
0: Uh, let's start with historical and lead it to the theological. Okay.
1: Well, historically, you know, um, Arminianism is is a branch of Reformed theology. When you go back into the sixteenth century context, Reformed theology was not as uh, crystallized and as hardened as it became uh, in the Synod of Dort in sixteen eighteen and nineteen. Uh, that's why the Synod of Dort was needed. Uh, from that Calvinist vantage point, the Senate of Dort was needed. It was called for because, uh, as Joel Beakey has emphasized, the uh, the other confessional standards really had some ambiguity about uh, election and predestination and, and the irresistibility of grace. Those things just weren't spelled out in any of the 16th century reform confessions. Uh, the Dutch reformed confessions and catechetical literature uh, certainly did not spell those out. The, the Heidelberg Catechism and the, uh, the, the, the Belgic Confession of Faith, those were the confessional standards in the Dutch Reformed churches. And th- those certainly did not, not articulate uh, uh, unconditional election and uh, irresistible grace. And those are the, 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 uh, the standards that Arminius himself uh, always held to and always loved. He said he handed out the Heidelberg Catechism second only to the Bible, Uh, and and so he was very excited about the Belgic Confession and Heidelberg Catechism, and he never disagreed with those. He always claimed to support those and to uh, confess those to his dying day, but even when you look beyond the Dutch church and you look uh, and beyond the German Reformed Church into other areas of Reformed Christianity in the 16th century, uh, you know, the confessional standards just don't probe those areas that scholastic theology probes, you know. And so you could have Arminius or, you know, say Beza, who are getting into deep issues of scholastic uh, debates about, uh, you know, um, uh, speculative theology and, and how all this works out and and, and, and speculative theology about de- determinism and free will and, and the decrees of God and all this. That's just not what the pastoral tone of the confessions and the catechism got into. So if what we're talking about is confessional theology, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, uh, Calvinist scholars say that Reformed confessional theology in the 16th century is just as Calvinist as the Synod of Dort. Uh, that's that's really kind of a misnomer. Uh, perhaps Reformed scholastic theology, in its mainstream in the late 16th century, can be said to be uh, just as Calvinistic as that of the Synod of Dort. But Reformed confessional theology certainly wasn't. Uh, the Confessions of faith and the catechisms of Calvin and the Reformed community that were meant for Pulpit and Pew certainly did not spell out issues such as perseverance of the saints or, you know, whether election is conditional or unconditional and whether grace is irresistible or resistible. They wanted to leave those things as open questions and have fellowship around those issues in the Reformed confessional community and the Reformed churches. So that's a little bit about the historical background. You just don't find a lot uh, in the confessional part of Reformed Christianity in the 16th century that leads you to be a strong Calvinist. Uh, You know, and so what you have is a developing Calvinism and a developing Bateson theology after Theodore Batesa that that gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Genevan theology, uh, you know, um, John Williamson Nevin, the, uh, the, the great Reformed, the German Reformed theologian here in America in the 19th century, uh, talked about the Genevan elements of Reformed theology in the 16th century that gained ground and gained more and more ground and really became the mainstream of theology uh, in, the sixth, in the late 16th century among the Reformed churches. But what you see in the early 17th century uh, after, uh, after Arminius's death, uh, the Arminian viewpoint becomes more and more uh, pronounced just as the Genevan viewpoint is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger in the schools. And so you have this clash that's going on and then you have this political uh, situation too where the, the prince uh, is, is, uh, is Calvinist and he wants to fight against, he wants to marshal uh, his resources and ally himself with with uh, the Calvinists. And so that comes into play. And so what you have is this sense that, hey, we really need a, 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 a synod that will come together and that will be an international reform synod that will deal with this question once and for all. And of course, as you and your listeners and your viewers know, uh, the Synod of Dort uh, said uh, we we believe in what's now called, you know, the five points of Calvinism. And they spelled those out really for the first time in a confessional sense. And so, you know, a lot of times the Reformed churches now will say uh, the, the three forms of unity are the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Senate of Dort. So obviously before the Synod of Dort, Your two forms of unity, the Belgian Confession and Heidelberg Catechism, did not spell out Calvinism, and so they allowed for people like Arminius to be fully reformed, and yet not be Calvinists. But the Synod of Dort would do that in the Canons of Dort in 1619, and even then, you had reformed churches that dissented from the from Dort. I mean, you know, one of the largest ones was the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which. Uh, obviously had a lot of Arminians in it and said, you know, we do not uh, like what that is. We do not want to say that Reformed Christianity is a narrow uh, sort of Calvinistic uh, theology that's associated with the canons of Dort. And so uh, that's a little bit of the historical background of, of why Arminius said, you know, I'm Reformed and, uh, and, and, and the like. Now, granted, after Arminius's death, uh, Stephen Gunter, the, the 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 translator and editor of uh, Arminius's Declaration of Sentiments, uh, with Baylor University Press, which is a great place to start, by the way. Gunter talks about the fact that Arminian theology changes a great deal between Arminius's death in 1609 and the uh, the the, the Synod of Dort in 1618. So there's a lot of change just in that eight years. And the Remonstrants are moving. Many of the Remonstrants, not all, are moving away from Arminius's view, more toward the view of kind of uh, Arminianism uh, in the mainstream. Uh, so that's a little bit about the historical. The theological is basically just that you know the the things in in those two forms of unity, the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, are beautiful. And great. And we believe those things. And and we believe that, you know, Reformed Arminians rejoice in in that broad reform stream of 16th century theology that you see in the 16th 16th century confessional tradition of the Reformed churches. Uh, And so we don't see any reason to to do away with that Uh, just because we believe things that many Reformed people believed in the 16th century about the the, the universal grace of God and that, that is resistible uh, before and after conversion. And, uh, and, and, and that we, you know, we believe that uh, man is free from necessity though, not free from depravity. Uh, so we, but, but all those other things about reformed theology we really love. And so for example, we, we believe in total depravity and we emphasize total depravity and we emphasize Provenient grace that uh, everyone has to have an individualized working of the spirit drawing him and enabling him or her to, to be converted in order to be converted. They, they could never be converted without that, without that special work of grace. In other words, grace is, prevenient grace as many Arminians say is not just kind of a, as my friend Steve Ashby says, a dense fog that settles on humanity so that everyone is just kind of graced. Everyone is just born with, with enough, without being depraved, essentially. We don't really believe that. We, you're still depraved, and and yet there's this drawing grace, this influence and response of the Holy Spirit that enables you to be able to be converted and, and gives you sufficient grace uh, you know, to stop that resistance that you naturally have. Uh, but then again, uh, when you get into atonement and justification, you know, we can talk about this more, but uh, we believe in, you know, what my mentor Leroy Fourlines like to call penal satisfaction atonement. And 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 in the deliverances of that in, in justification, we are imputed with the active and passive obedience of Christ. So we stand just before uh, God in, in that righteousness, not in our own. And uh, so... You know, most Arminians don't believe that. Most Arminians believe that you don't have any imputation uh, at all of the righteousness of Christ. And there are a few that would say that you outside the Reformed Arminian uh, group that would say, well, maybe the passive obedience of Christ is imputed, but not the active obedience. But, uh, you know, people like Wesley and, and, and those early Wesleyan theologians and most Wesleyans, they would just say, imputation is a legal fiction. You know, you're forgiven. There's no imputation that's going on. That's kind of a legal fiction that's been dreamt up by Calvinists. So, but we would say, no, yes, we believe we agree with Calvinists on that. Um, You know, I like to say that uh, sometimes that we agree with Calvinists on what it means to be in a state of grace. But we disagree with Calvinists, we reformed Arminians, disagree with Calvinists on how one comes to be in a state of grace. And so, you know, how one comes to be in a state of grace, we would agree with mainstream Arminianism. But what it means to be in a state of grace, we would tend to just say, yeah, Calvinism's got it right on that. So even in sanctification, you know, we don't believe in. Second work of grace and uh, subsequent works of grace and crisis moments where you have uh, this this breakthrough moment where the Holy Spirit does a different work and you know we don't believe in Keswick theology and holiness theology and we don't believe in in uh, a crisis mystical sense of spirituality. We tend to the Puritan ordinary means of grace approach to spirituality. We don't believe in entire sanctification uh, and, and we believe in, uh, full assurance of salvation, uh, not, n- not this sort of, you know, precarious, you know, if I don't have all my sins confessed, am I going to die in them and go to hell? And, you know, this kind of thing. So, so, uh, and, you know, the, those, uh, those who are a little bit, you know, more diehard reformed Arminians, you know, we go with the whole nine yards of, you know, reformed epistemology and Kuyperianism and, Reformed eschatology and, you know, uh, uh, the regulative principle of worship and the sufficiency of scripture for church practice. I mean, you know, those of us who are really into it, we just kind of go whole hog. So that's a little just a thumbnail sketch, but we can get into the details.
0: So your thumbnail sketch gave me like 10 things I want to ask. (laughs) Um, Let me start with... If I think a lot of people, some of the first works that they take off the shelf for when they're starting to Reformed theology might be somebody like Francis Turretin. And when he's talking about the remonstrance of the Arminians, it seems like the people he has in mind are not what you would call Reformed Arminians. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's one of the problems is that most of the writers, and you know, because Reformed Arminianism is a small branch of Arminianism. Uh, the 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 only group of people, or the only religious tradition, uh, or a denomination, or church that uh, kind of held on to Arminius's original vision were the General Baptists, and then you know some of those General Baptists came over to America in the uh, in the 17th century, in the late 17th century, to the American South, to the colonies, and they later, a century later, were dubbed. Uh, uh, free will Baptists, and that's the denomination that I'm a part of. Um, but most Arminians are either remonstrant Arminians who became much more rationalist and much more, you know, what we would say liberal today, uh, uh, much more semi-Pelagian in their views. And But the vast majority of of Arminians are uh, sort of either are Wesleyan Arminians, and, and uh, you know, they would be a lot different uh, in, in their views, for example, of atonement and justification and sanctification and, and, and perseverance and those sorts of things than, than Reformed Arminians would be. There are, of course, a lot of Anabaptists, most Anabaptists and most churches of Christ, Christian church, disciples of Christ, uh, people who would be in the Restoration or the Stone-Campbell movement, most of those would, be, uh, would consider themselves Arminian, even though they don't really come from that historical stream. They would identify with Arminianism, but they don't tend to be like Reformed Arminians either. Although the interesting thing is there are some Wesleyans and some Stone Campbell people that do very much identify themselves as Reformed Arminians, and some Anabaptists who call themselves Reformed Arminians. And so there are people in all those sort of more mainstream Arminian movements who would still think of themselves as Reformed Arminian. But uh, those, because the majority of Armenians, the vast majority, um, you know, in Anglican Arminianism is its own stream of Arminianism that uh, tends to be, uh, they don't tend to be entire sanctificationists like the Westlands but they tend to have a lot, of, a lot of things in common with that sort of, you know, the, the, the late 17th century uh, uh, view of uh, Anglican Arminianism was called the holy living school associated with people like Henry Hammond and Jeremy Taylor. So, you know, all those, the mainstream of, uh, of, of Arminianism is not going to be reformed Arminian. They're gonna be very different from Arminius in those ways. And so when people back then are responding to Arminianism or Remonstrantism, they're going to be responding usually to Anglican Arminianism or to Remonstrant Arminianism in the late 17th century. So, for example, you know, um, that's who uh, Jonathan Edwards is responding to, is the Anglican Arminians who were very semi-Pelagian uh, by his time. And uh, he's not even responding to the Wesleyan Arminians. But many of the later 18th century uh, Calvinists are responding just to Wesley's brand of Arminianism, whereas earlier folks like Turretin and, like I said, even Jonathan Edwards are responding to something that's more like semi-Pelagianism, and that's kind of an Anglican Arminianism.
0: Okay, that's, that's helpful context. Um, I've got a question. You mentioned penal satisfaction. For what you would affirm is that different than penal substitutionary atonement?
1: If it's not, no, it's the same thing. It's just some people it kind of tightens it a little bit. I know J.I. Packer used to love the the word uh, penal satisfaction. You know, uh, Thomas Oden, the 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 Methodist theologian, used that word a lot. And my mentor Leroy Fourlines was very fond of that because he thought it it tightened and made clearer and clarified what was meant by penal substitution, so that Christ is actually taking your place and fulfilling the law in your stead. So he's not only taking the place of your uh, punishment and taking your punishment on Him, but he's also fulfilling the law in your stead and his active obedience to the demands of the law. And all of that, when you come into union with Christ, is made yours through justification, through imputation. So,
0: if reform Armenians believe that, do they believe to, you mentioned they believe total depravity? Why is it that so often I hear reform guys just call Armenians or even Arminius himself a blanket semi-Pelagian?
1: It's just because it's been repeated so much in the secondary literature. I was at ETS last week, and it was repeated again. It's just over and over and over again, and I really encourage. You know, th- there's a, a friend of mine um, that, uh, Sean Wright, who has written a book uh, called 40 Questions About Calvinism. I endorsed the book. I thought it was a fine volume. that was fair and, and 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 it was kind and, and ironic. And he did such a great job. Um, and I encourage my Arminian friends, do not caricature uh, Calvinism. Read Sean Wright's book. Get get it from the horse's mouth, um, read Matthew Barrett, you know, some of these Calvinists that are uh, on the cutting edge of research on Calvinism, and, and read what they're saying, and don't go by, you know, somebody that, that's uh, written 150 years ago that may not represent mainstream Calvinism. Well, I wish that the Calvinists would do the same thing, the calvinists are just relying on not the calvinists but many calvinists are relying on secondary sources that are based on 150 and 200 year old and 250 year old information and all the quotations that those sources are gleaning from are semi-pelagian uh you know anglican arminians like dan whitby and uh and 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 more works righteousness uh you know, moralistic, legalistic authors like Adam Clark and and uh, Minor Raymond and 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 you know Methodist authors that are that are more moralistic. I wouldn't call them semi-Pelagian, but they're more moralistic in the way that they see uh the interplay of faith and works in the Christian life. And you you know, you may be saved by faith, but you're kind of, you know, you don't have the imputation of Christ righteousness or anything, but you're kind of just kept by Kept by works or kept by your ability to remember all your sins and to confess them. And so, you know, it, it's not fair to judge Arminianism based on secondary sources that just repeat quotations from old works that are only quoting re- liberal remonstrants and uh, semi Pelagian Anglicans or entire sanctificationist Wesleyans. That's just not fair. So when you look at Arminius himself, when you look at even the early remonstrant confessions and statements in, in the early 17th century, um, you do not see anything like semi-Pelagianism. Uh, when you look at all the general Baptist confessions and all the Arminian confessions and all the Methodist confessions, uh, it is very clear that, uh, that, that God's grace is, is involved at every process before, during, and all throughout the process of uh, of conversion and justification and sanctification, the Holy Spirit through His grace is very very much doing a special work of grace to make these things possible. And so it's just not fair, and it's just kind of sloppy, frankly, to uh, to do this um, and to continue to repeat this this thing. I mean, you know, even John Fesco in his recent collection of essays on, on uh, Jacobus Arminius, you know, how can such a fine scholar who in so many other ways is so helpful and so how can he just continue to repeat these allegations of Arminius as a, as a semi-Pelagian? It's just really kind of shocking. So, you know, Arminius uh, said, we believe in the, uh, in, in in we want to maintain the greatest possible distance from Pelagianism. We are dead in our sins. We are blind. We are spiritually blind. We're in complete darkness. Without a special work of the Holy Spirit's grace on our minds and our hearts, we can never, uh, we can never do anything pleasing to God. We can never reach out to God on our own. We can never do what is in us uh, without the Holy Spirit in a personal work of grace coming to us in an influence and response relationship. And so it's just unfair and it's just kind of uh, shocking sometimes when you actually read just what Arminian confessions and Arminius himself said to continue to say that you know Arminians are semi-Pelagians. You know, if you, if you want to say that Arminians are legalists or are moralists or believe in a works righteousness after they've come to Christ, Well, I would agree a lot of them do. (laughs) That's why I'm a reformed Arminian. I don't think Arminius did. I don't think the General Baptist did. And even those earlier remonstrants, I don't think many of them did. But uh, but certainly reformed Arminians do not believe that, you know, you kind of get converted and then you're just kind of on your own and you just kind of got to stay fessed up. So while we're on the topic
0: of unfair criticisms, I'm curious about this. It seems to me that Baptist history is dominated, at least today, by what we would call particular Baptists, and it seems that almost every narrative that I've read comparing the general Baptist and the particular Baptist, there is a narrative of decline among the general Baptists that, whether they intentionally do it or not, seems to paint a picture of general Baptists are just unorthodox in general, and therefore that's why they end up becoming Unitarians. Is that a fair picture of what's happening with the General Baptists?
1: No, that's not. And and maybe we should do a separate uh, broadcast, just podcast, just on this question, because maybe you should get Jesse Owens and me on to talk about just that issue. We're working on a book right now about that. And the fact is that Calvinist historians love and have loved for centuries to say that, uh, well, you know, Arminians are just, they're just... Heterodox. I mean, you know, obviously the the, the the Senator Dort said that Arminianism is a heresy. A lot of times people say that and say, no, no, man, surely you're overstating that. Surely they didn't say that Arminianism was heresy. They just said it was not correct. And I said, no, they, the, the, they said it was heresy. And there are a lot of modern, you know, uh, uh, reformed historians who will say, yeah, the Senator Dort says that it was heresy. But, uh, well, you know, and obviously since Arminianism is heresy, well then, the and you you've got general, but some general Baptists that start a, a very small minority in the 17th century that grows to be a bigger minority in the 18th that start playing around with uh, Trinitarianism and with Christology and saying heterodox things. Okay, you put two and two together. Well, that makes sense. You know, we know Arminianism is a heresy. We know Arminianism leads to all sorts of heresy and not just semi-Pelagianism, but also Socinianism. So since that's obviously we've got that, well, then obviously it makes sense that the General Baptists are that way too. And that's just not so. Um, I've got a something that I wrote on your very uh, for your very uh, blog or your journal or whatever, the London Lyceum. And uh, it's called, We're General Baptist Biblicists. And the issue is, you know, the, the, the thought is that, well, General Baptists were biblicists. They were not creedal. They were not confessional. They did not articulate a Trinitarian theology and, and an, an Orthodox Christology because they were biblicists. They didn't quote the church fathers. They didn't believe in all that. It's just me and Jesus, we got our own thing going, no creed but the Bible. And that's just false. That is a false narrative. And uh, the General Baptists were not Biblicists. There was a small group of people that claimed to be Biblicists, and they said, We only want our confessions to have a biblical language. But even the ringleader of that group, Matthew Caffin, who was also the ringleader of the anti Trinitarian group in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, even Caffin said that uh, he, he would defend himself and he would say, No, I uh, believe in the good old apostolical view of the Trinity. <laughs> so it's like, okay, what, what do you say? He's saying he believes in the Trinity. Well, that's not a biblical word. He's saying he believes that the Trinity is a good old apostolical doctrine. Well, that just doesn't sound very biblicist to me. Biblicist to me. And he's the ringleader. But then again, he never would admit to it. Nobody ever would sign their names to it. Uh, you know, now you, when you get way over later into the 18th century, you have some people that come out as anti-Trinitarian. Um, but in the 17th century, you just don't have that. Uh, Matthew Caffin never signs his name, uh, to anything but orthodox statements. And the I think it was 1691 or 1692, uh, the, 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 to try to put an end to all this, the General Assembly, the General Baptists says, well, let's use Mr. Grantham, Thomas Grantham, who's probably the most influential of all the General Baptists in the 17th century. Let's take his uh, wording where he explains the wording of the 1660 Confession by quoting Augustine. And let's put that in the Confession. Let's revise the Confession and make uh, uh, Grantham's Augustinian language about the Trinity and the person of Christ a part of the confession. And anyone who does not subscribe to this confession will henceforth be disfellowship from the General Assembly of the General Baptists. Well, who's the first person to get up and sign the confession? Well, you know, no, no, no doubt with a quill pen. Well, it was Matthew Caffin. And these anti-Trinitarians, when they would write pamphlets, they never signed their name to them. They always had a fake name. And Matthew Caffin, you know, like I said, he said he claimed in public that he believed in the good old apostolical trinity. But he, uh, we kind of know in hindsight he didn't, and he was up to something. And there were certainly a lot of people, uh, a small group of people in the General Baptist General Assembly, Now, the forefathers of our group, you know, I told you I was with the Free Will Baptist Church. And our group wrote uh, wrote to the General Association of General Baptists in 1702. And that's with whom they corresponded. And the General Association actually pulled out of the General Assembly because Joseph Wright, one of the leaders of the General Association, said, you know, y- y'all are not doing enough to get rid of these heretics. We've got some people in here that are that, that are false teachers and that are heretics on the doctrine of the Trinity and the person of Christ. I heard Matthew Caffin tell me with his own mouth that he was. But then Matthew Caffin would just say, No, 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 no. I I, I have never. I I I there's some abstruse things about the doctrine of the Trinity in the in, in in the ancient church that I may not differ with, but I believe in the good old apostolical trinity. So, you know, most General Baptists just said, we don't have proof that these guys are teaching this. And Joseph Wright said, well, I have proof because I heard it with my own ears when he said it with his own mouth. And so I'm going to start a new association. And so a minority of the General Assembly came out into the General Association. And that was actually the group that our forefathers in the Free Will Baptist Church identified with in the early 18th century. But uh, I think I'm getting too far afield from Reformed Arminianism. But yeah, I mean, uh, there's this tendency to impute these heterodox views to anyone who's an Arminian. But let me tell you, there were people like Thomas Collier who were strong particular Baptists and who had a strong influence over the particular Baptists who had held heterodox views. There were Anglicans who held heterodox views. There were Presbyterians who held heterodox views. The Presbyterians embraced universalism in great numbers in the 18th century. So, you know, th- this, this idea that if you start off as an Arminian, you're going to end up a, he- you know, a heretic, that's just not so. Uh, you know, Calvinism, Calvinists tended to like universalism a little bit better. Hmm, wonder why. You know, Calvinists tended to develop their heresy in a universalist way, but they weren't free from from Unitarianism either. But uh, anyway, so, so yeah, I think that we got to be careful about jumping to conclusions about the General Baptists and their, their uh, quote-unquote heterodoxy.
0: Well, I can imagine if we had YouTube back then, they'd be recording each other and then they'd have proof.
1: <laughs> that's right, that's right. And I suspect, I mean, I agree with... Uh, the mainstream historiographical opinion, that hindsight's always twenty twenty, and we kind of know from the 18th century that the General Baptists had some, some Trinitarian heresy that was going on in the late 17th. But what I don't like is to go back and try to make the 17th century General Baptists look like they were just a bunch of Biblicists, heterodox. People that didn't care anything about creedal formulas, didn't care anything about the fathers, didn't care anything about Nicene Orthodoxy. You know, they were just, you know, just me and Jesus, we got our own thing going and, you know, me and my Bible and no creed but the Bible. That's just not the way it was.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I read the uh, Orthodox Creed, I was struck by how robust it was, even in comparison to a lot of traditionally mainline Reformed confessions, um, drawing on a lot of, um, themes that I don't think are present in them. So it's much more specific.
1: Yeah. The Orthodox creed, I would encourage your readers, your, uh, viewers rather to, uh, to go look at the Orthodox creed because it's, uh, it's a great example of reformed Arminianism. It's very reformed. It's very Arminian in the five points of Calvinism, uh, at least in the last four points of Calvinism, but it's, uh, it's very reformed in every other way, and uh, as you're as you'll see when you read it. So
0: on perseverance of the saints, how, how does that work out? What 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 is it that makes somebody become apostate? Because I think a lot of people who, when they hear if you deny perseverance of the saints, there's some like a significant amount of anxiety of, oh, well, if I if I sin, then I'm out. Is that yeah. how should I think about it?
1: Yeah, you know the the, the sort of popular typical arminian approach is that uh, if i sin you know sometimes it's one sin sometimes it's you know a few weeks or a month or i don't know how long of sins and i get into uh, you know i'm if i sin and i die in that state i'm going to i'm not going to go to heaven i'm going to go to hell and so what reformed arminianism says well that you have you are righteous and just not in your own self. We would agree with, you know, the canons of Dort, you know, the fifth head of the canon of Dort and what it says about assurance. You know, it kind of doesn't make sense to say like it does that you're assured of, nobody can really be assured of future salvation. You know, whether you're, you know, seriously, I mean, you can be a five-point Calvinist, four-point Calvinist, once saved, always saved. You can be a Roman Catholic. You can be a you know, you be whatever you want to, and you you can't be assured of your future salvation, right? I mean, if you're if you if, if you are living for Christ, uh, and, and you believe that you're elect, and then you stop going to church and stop living for Christ, and you're in a life of sin for the next thirty years, and then you die, well, the Calvinists will just say, well, you 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 weren't one of the elect; you just thought you were. Well, but you can't give a person like that assurance of future salvation. In a sense, no one has assurance of future salvation. It's just, if you, if you lose it, well, well, were you really converted or did you just think you were converted? You you see what I'm saying? So, but when it comes to assurance of salvation, assurance of present salvation, you know, we would agree in every way with the fifth head of of the canons of Dort. We would agree with all those beautiful reformed confessions. I mean, I read uh, 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 John Owen, uh, you know, the, the mortification of sin and, his approach to number 1 the importance of holy living as in the reformed tradition and you know his view of that but also his view that uh, one can go through periods of struggle with sin and, and and of drifting from the lord but still be a believer and still be uh, in christ so we would believe that kind of puritan approach and reformed arminians would say that uh, you are in Christ and you. he has paid your penalty, your sin. The penalty for your sin is paid. And so as long as you're in union with Christ, then there is no condemnation. There is no penalty. So if you die in union with Christ, there's no penalty. So we just have to say that a, a concomitant doctrine of the active and passive obedience of Christ being imputed to the believer must be that if that believer dies in Christ, that believer will uh, be in glory, be, you know, be with Christ, uh, after he or she dies. Um, you know, most people believe that if you commit suicide, that, uh, you know, you, you can't go to heaven, but it's, but see, reformed Armenian, and I'm talking, whether they're Catholic, whether they're Orthodox, whether they're Anabaptist, Arminian Church of Christ, uh, you know, most people who are, who, who are Claim to be Christians don't believe that a person who commits suicide will go to heaven because it's a mortal sin and you can't, you're dead, so you can't ask forgiveness for it. But see, Reformed Arminians would say, well, not, not necessarily. I mean, you know, um, you can't read people's hearts, and the person who committed suicide uh, may well have been in union with Christ and have been a Christian. There might have been mitigating circumstances, but a sin does not cause you to lose your salvation. And so, uh, someone could have been in union with Christ and could have been a, a truly regenerate person and, and committed and knowingly committed suicide. I'm not talking about people who are mentally uh, ill, um, but people who you know, had a, 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 a disastrous, received disastrous news, news and committed suicide. That person may have been a Christian and committed a, an egregious sin and still be in heaven. So the, the, the main point that Reformed Arminians want to make with other Arminians and other non-Calvinists is that yes, the Bible teaches the possibility of apostasy. The warning passages must be taken seriously in our view, but that does not mean that uh, when you die in sin that you're going to be separated from Christ for eternity. It's whether you die in union with Christ or outside of union with Christ, that is decisive for that. And so, because, and what you end up with is a sort of, you know, what uh, the Arminian Puritan, John Goodwin, called repeated regeneration or the reiteration of regeneration. You basically end up with uh, losing your salvation, getting it back, losing it, getting back, losing it, getting back. Now, the Roman Catholic uh, practice is that you go and you receive absolution from a priest and so the way you get that back is through priestly absolution after auricular confession of your sin but uh, most arminians don't believe that that's the way it it occurs you just you know you just make your own confession and you you repent and then you're restored to Christ but uh, some arminians will say that you know if you commit one sin and you die in that, you know, if you commit one sin, you've just lost your salvation. And when, when you repent, you're restored. Uh, others will say, uh, it's not just one sin, or it's not, it's, it's, it's one very bad sin. Like one of those sins that is in the vice lists in Paul, that if you commit one of those sins, you will, you will uh, lose your salvation. But if you, if you, knowingly set your cruise control on 80 in a 55 mile an hour zone and you knowingly take what is not rightfully yours which is the right to drive at 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 that speed when the when the the lawful authorities Romans 13 have told you that you cannot do it and if you if you can if you set your cruise control and you are willfully sinning well that's different you, you won't lose your salvation with that sin. But see that's come on. Uh, the, the, I, we, Reformed Armenians just don't go with that. And so we believe that if you have the righteousness of Christ, his active and passive obedience, if he has paid your penalty, if he has satisfied the just demands of the law of the Holy God, if he has, has fulfilled the law in your stead and that is yours and you are in union with Christ, that as long as you are in that union, you uh, are saved, you are converted, you are regenerate. But if you get into a habit of sin and you get into the practice of sin, that is inconsistent with saving faith. And we would believe just like the Puritans and just like John Calvin on that. It's just that we would say, eventually you're going to get to a place where your heart is so hardened. You harden your heart so much against the Holy Spirit that you break fellowship with him altogether and you no longer have faith, you know what the book of Hebrews calls being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and that hardened state you resist and you reject the Holy spirit and you have no more grace. And, and yet we don't believe that that happens every day with, with people. We don't believe that uh, we believe when we say backsliding, we just mean that someone is not as close to God as he was. When most Armenians say backsliding, that they mean uh, you lose your salvation, you know, uh, when you sin and you have to get it back. So I don't know if that I know I'm kind of rambling here, but I don't know if that helps any.
0: No, that does. So as I as I think about resources, we have a lot of reformed, traditionally reformed listeners. Who are the one or two or maybe three? Arminians that they should be reading, whether they're a pastor or they're a theologian Arminian, where should they be spending their time reading?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I would recommend my book, 40 Questions, that you mentioned earlier, Um, 40 Questions About Arminianism. I would also mention Classical Arminianism by uh, Leroy Fourlines, who is my mentor. Another mentor of mine is Robert Piccarelli who has written a book called Grace, Faith, Free Will. So, uh, you know, I would also mention Thomas Oden, who would never have used the word Reformed Arminianism, but in a lot of ways is very similar uh, to Reformed Arminianism, even though he was always a Methodist. The things he said resonate very much with the Reformed Arminians. And Oden's best book on that would be called The Transforming Power of Grace. So, uh, you know, Picarilli, Grace, Faith, Free Will, Four Lines, Classical Arminianism, My 40 Questions book, and also uh, Transforming Power of Grace by Odin. Um, By the way, you know, there's a really good book uh, by Roger Olson. Roger Olson seems to me to be basically a reformed Arminian. And when you get out of the five points of Calvinism, he would be a lot more post-conservative than most reformed Arminians. So there's a lot we disagree with. Roger Olson on about a lot of things and he and I are friends and we know where our areas of agreement or disagreement are, but when it comes to Arminianism and Calvinism, uh, you know, Roger Olson is very close to reformed Arminianism, uh, if not just to reform, I mean, he, he, he reviewed, he, uh, endorsed my book, 40 questions. And I mean, basically I think he's a reformed Arminian when it comes to, you know, the, the controverted points between Arminianism and Calvinism. And, uh, so that, his, he's got a book called uh, um, Arminian Theology, Myths and Realities, which I would recommend. Um, oh, there's another book that I would recommend. Uh, there's a chapter in a book I did one time called uh, Four Views on Eternal Security that is the Reformed Arminian chapter in that book. And it's written by a gentleman named Stephen M. Ashby. Uh, A-S-H-B-Y, and really, dollar for dollar, that's probably your best succinct introduction to Reformed Arminianism. If you read his chapter and his responses in Four Views on Eternal Security, Ashby, you've probably got the best short introduction to the topic.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for giving these resources, and thanks for walking me through all this. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, if you all want to follow along with Dr. Pinson, you should keep up with Welch College and the things that they're doing there. Uh, so if you have uh, kids who are in that undergraduate range, uh, you should give Welch College a look. Um, like I mentioned, Jesse Owens, one of my friends, is a professor there. Uh, so if, if everybody there is like Dr. Pinson and Dr. Owens, then I can wholeheartedly recommend the institution with all the fiber of my being. So check it out. Plus, they're in Nashville. Nashville is a cool place.
1: Um, I I might also recommend if you have listeners who are listening to this who are Reformed Arminians or who like what they've heard, uh, we have an MDiv program as well. And so uh, we have Welsh Divinity School. We have an MA program that's completely online. And then we have a hybrid MDiv program that's partially online, partially on campus. So that would be a great opportunity for some of your readers uh, for some of your uh, viewers as well
0: awesome well check that out so i'll make sure to find the links for it and put that in the notes so that when you uh, are, are listening to this you can click them and be taken right there for you anyway i appreciate you all listening and tuning in to the only analytic baptist confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon